welcome to a very special episode of Opinions. Uh, Martin and I are joined this week by a couple of guests, and we're going to let the guys introduce themselves. Hey guys, I'm Josh. Uh, I'm the brand ambassador for Goose Island for Europe. Um, I work directly with Chicago and I look after events and uh, training. Hi, I'm Johnny Tyson. I work for Pioneer. Uh, we look after Goose Island, amongst other breweries uh, for Europe, and I'm in charge of uh, knowledge and training. Excellent. And obviously Martin's here. Martin, how yep. are you doing? Evening. Not too bad, mate. Looking forward to this. Good, good. So, so why are we here, mate? Uh, well, we were inspired, uh, Steve, by a blog from one of our friends, Justin Mason. Um, he writes under Get Beer, Drink Beer. And he wrote a piece called The Moral High Ground, Shades of Grey. And um, he really did nail a few really good points about big beer, the industry, buyouts, does it change what you buy, what you think of them, that kind of thing. And that sort of got us thinking. And at the same time as that, I think one of, uh, you know, one of the people who listen to our podcast regularly got in contact with you who was from Goose Island, a colleague of the guys here. Absolutely, yeah. Tom, who, who's known to, to, to you guys, yeah. um, got in touch and said, really enjoy listening to the show. Uh, would you be interested in, in doing something with Goose Island? And, and we had a few conversations and here we are, sat, sat around the table um, to talk about talk about beer and probably most importantly to drink some beer as, as well so shall we um we're going to do a few beers in in this show so let's let's get into the first one now uh what have you got for us first of all so first beer that i've got is uh our 312 we're actually pouring this one out of cans we've just got cans over into the uk which is great so 312 stands for the uh it's the darling code of chicago this is actually said to be one of Barack Obama's favourite beers as well. We've, we have him in an interview talking about it as a fellow Chicagoan. But uh, basically, it's an American wheat ale. So a fellow Chi- sorry? Chicagoan. Chicago. Oh, Chicago. I'm going to get my name that one, yeah. Can I say it with a Jamaican yeah. accent? <laughs> Chicagoan, not Chicagoan. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's an American wheat ale. Um, for me, this one's a, it's a big training piece for, for sort of venues in the UK, especially. Um, American wheat ales aren't like Belgian Vit beers or, or German Weiss beers. Actually, traditionally, the, the yeast strain you would use is an English-style ale yeast. Um, and our, our sort of Goose Island House ale yeast, uh, de- it derives from an English-style ale yeast. So you're not going to get a lot of those leading flavors that you do, like the cloves and the bananas and the bubblegum. Um, but also, you know, you get the citrus notes from the hops. Um, and actually you have less additions of wheat, so around 30% in, in, in American wheat ale. So with that, you're not gonna get the sort of full body, um, but it's almost like a nice light summer ale. I would put it more into that English sort of mm-hmm. summer ale category. That's actually what we enter it into the uh, Great American Beer Festival. Um, we've picked up four medals with this one at the Great American Beer Festival okay. as well. So. Excellent. Okay. So should we get stuck in yeah? Cheers. Cheers. It's 4.2% as well, yeah. so quite, quite really lower really on the ABV. Yeah. Yeah. It's very light. It's, it's incredibly light um, on, on the mouthfeel. Um, and just on the flavours that are in there as well, it's, it's, it's a really light, easy beer. I can, I can see why you'd want to drink this in the summer. Um, perfect sort of like summer, summer refreshing beer. Absolutely, and and the thing for this one for me is is you know coming. I I've run a lot of bars in in my past. That's where I come from. Uh, we've sold this in previous pubs. Uh, we're in the White Horse and Parsons Green tonight, and it's a pub that I ran for a couple of years. We've sold this beer, and, and generally would sell it to uh, lager drinkers, to those guys that kind of want to try something different, maybe take a dip into craft, um, but you know don't want to get scared away by the the high bitterness you might get with an IPA. So it's kind of a nice crossover style. 
again, the guys that would come in and drink wheat beers, maybe Schneiderweiss or Francis Garner, I wouldn't necessarily serve a pint of this to them. I'd allow them to try it first because these guys might turn around and go, well, actually, it's not got those banana notes. It's not as full bodied. It's not what they're looking for. It's all about getting it to the right customer. Mm-hmm. Yes. So she said a pint of this in the summer. It's perfect. Yeah, so the wheat is just a component part, isn't it? Rather than just being the overriding yeah. factor. Yeah. Like the wheat beers you described from Germany there, the Schneiderweiss, that is the big thing, isn't it? Then you get the banana, the cloves. Whereas for this one, it's just another element of the beer, isn't it? Yeah, and it doesn't have, you know, Belgian wheat beer has coriander and curacao orange peel traditionally in it. Um, other versions of other things in them, but... This doesn't. This is just quite sort of straightforward. Yeah. It's a really delicious but easygoing, sessionable beer. Yeah, it's, it's almost quite fruity on the uh, on the palate. Yeah, it's 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 really easy to drink. Yeah, and, um, comes in a can now as as well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a, a plan that we're um, we're, we're planning to bring our cans across. Three one two is the first IPA is going to be coming soon as well. Um, you know, big advocate at, at Gusan in Chicago with canning. Um, you know, obviously for the packaging benefits, also the protection from the the sort of um, the effects of the sun on the hops. So yeah, no, it's great, and, and it looks great on the shelf. I mean. Okay, so so you said um, early on that this is obviously is this one of your core range beers. Mm-hmm. Um, what what else sits within that core range for for, for Goose Island? So we've got our three core beers uh, leading the way is our IPA, uh, which we're going to try in a sec, and we've also got our Honkers Ale, which is one of the first beers we brewed back in '88, which is kind of um, inspired by by Fuller's London Pride. Uh, one of John's favourite beers and favourite breweries in London. Again, it was a, kind of an inspiration for John starting the brewery. Uh, used to drink in this pub in the White Horse, used to drink Fuller's London Pride here. So that's a, another one of the three. Um, and then we've got kind of got extended core, which are over. So we've just got Green Line Pale Ale over, um, which unlike other American Pale Ales at the moment, it's more to that English side. It's not dry hopped, it's not as fruity, it's kind of nice and balanced. So again, I, I kind of put it in those those kind of characters, the guys that are drinking lager that might want something with a bit more malt, but it's not it's not going to shock the palate. You know, we're all about balanced yeah. beers, and then we've got Four Star Pills has just come over as well, which is a really really cool. Um, it's an American pilsner. It's got some nice uh, nice citrus hops in there, some Zythos, five point one percent. So yeah, we've got some. Good stuff it's over. quite a good range of, of beers available in, in the UK right now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we're looking to bring some of our sours across as well. We've got uh, Captain Craft currently stocked some of them. Obviously, they're, they're very limited beers, but we are, you know, part of my job as well is to fight to get some of the more limited uh, beers over. Let's let's just come back uh, a little bit to uh, the, the, the brewery itself, so it's Goose Island itself. Give us the kind of potted history of, uh, of the, the brewery. When did it start, the development of it, and, uh, and where it is now? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we started off as a brew pub in 1988. We're actually the first brewery in Chicago. Uh, the last one closed down in around 1972. Um, so, yeah, John Hall, founder, started it as a brew pub in 88. His kind of previous job, because John, John's not a brewer. John started the, started the company. Uh, his previous job was kind of corporate America, working in packaging, uh, spent a lot of time traveling Europe, uh, UK especially, and if you look at what styles of beer were, were popular in the US at that time, it was those kind of, those macro lager styles, um, and John fell in love with, with English ale, fell in love with Belgian beer, and uh, when he came back to Chicago, he kind of, he thought Chicago was ready to try something. So, um, yep, yeah, started up a brew pub in 88, that's when we released Honkers, our first beer, and um, kind of went from strength to strength. A lot of John's friends thought he was a bit, a bit, you know, it's a bit of a, a bit mad, really. Well, Honkers is very different to what was on offer because my first visit to the States was 1989. Yeah. And the few times I could get a beer, 
because I was 18, so I was legal age in, in the UK and seemed to be vastly underage for drinking in America, <laughs> uh, which is a bit of a nightmare for me. And they were quite strict about it as well, but it was, it, it was the macro lager. So the Hong Gazelle was actually quite, although that was his, he did it as an ode to London Pride, it was quite brave. It was, it was, it came across actually like it was very, people saw that as hugely bitter. Like it was a very challenging style for sh- Chicago people at yeah. the time. Definitely. 30 IBUs, 12, 20, 29 IBUs. Um, about 29 more than what they were used to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 20, 33 <laughs> more than they were used to. Yeah, exactly. So it was. Um, but now that's kind of one of our most, you know, prob- not, you know, not as a, it's, it's more bitter than 312 definitely, but it's de- seen as one of our nice rounded beers. Um, so yeah, it was. It was a big, big kind of challenge at the time. Mm-hmm. So we started the brew pub in 88. And, um, you know, very, very kind of quickly, it became very popular. Um, then 1995, we opened up Fulton Brewery. So that's where we, we brew today still, uh, 50 barrel brew kit. And, um, you know, again, it's gone from strength to strength. We, we started off a barrel aging program, barrel fermenting with South Sisters and, and Bourbon County Stout, which started in 1992 with uh, Greg. So that was probably going back a little bit. That was the next key moment. John's kind of ethos was, um, you know, loves London Pride, loves kind of low ABV bounce British ales. So his inspiration for the beers he wanted the guys to brew were the IPA, English style with an American twist, the, the kind of English bitters. When Greg joined in 92, actually as a master brewer, um, he, he loved what his dad did, but it was almost this conflict because he was like, dad, I, I want to do new things. I want to innovate. I want to bring out stuff that people haven't seen before. So Greg was really the brainchild of Bourbon County Stout and you know, the sour beers that we do now as well. So it's just given us, for me, it's, you know, we do over 60 beers over the year, um, and we've just got a really, really kind of almost conflicting portfolio, but we, we cover a lot of styles, and you know, there's, there's somebody there for everyone. So within those 60 beers, are there a lot of seasonals as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're bringing out our, our spring ale, will be our, our sort of last link in the chain for our, for our seasonals. So we do a winter ale, which is a lovely nut brown, so that's gonna be coming over to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Oktoberfest over at the moment, so look out for that, that's, that's a really nice beer. Um, we've got our, our summer ale, which is a, a Kolsch, German Kolsch style beer, and, um, and our spring ale, which is, is going to be new for 2017. So yeah. I haven't tried that one yet either, so I'm excited. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's just get some more thoughts on the, the, the 312. I know it's both our glasses. We're, we're finished, yeah, yeah, we're finished. Um, what, what, what do you think of, of, of the beer? I, it's, it, it would be, I think, the, it was well described by Josh earlier, it's a good gateway. Yeah, um, I think if someone really had a real love for the German wheat beers, the stronger dark ones, or the very coriander heavy Belgian ones, I, I would be like Josh. I don't think they'd get that much from it. Whereas I quite like yes is the answer <laughs> to the question which Josh was about to ask. Yeah, um, didn't even come out of my mouth. Uh, yeah, but the um, it's, it's very light. It's very drinkable. Yeah, a little bit of dryness at the end as well, which is yeah. quite nice. Makes you want to go back for more, so it's it works well. But but that just that just adds itself to that. If if you were drinking this beer in the summer, it's going to give you a a lovely refreshing feel. But it's going to give you that dryness as well that yeah. you want. That's going to make you want to carry on again and again and again. And I think that's the point that it is a like you said, it's a gateway beer. Uh, there's plenty of people out there who haven't had massively hopped IPAs who would mm. be, you know, their palates might be a bit kind of put off by that uh, you know and they go into the sort of the, the contemporary craft beer kind of world uh, it's beers like this which get new drinkers in who've been drinking sort of uh, mainstream lagers yeah I think that's a good point well made actually because we, all, we can forget that sometimes yeah because we're not gateway ourselves 
No, we've we've moved on from yeah. From the, gate, the gates are long. Yeah, it's way back. There. <laughs> yeah. but I think you know that that is the thing, and I've seen that coming from the other end of the bar. You know, number one, the bar staff and the guys working have to keep the beer well, so that you make sure that pint tastes great when the customer gets it. But also, they need to know what style of beer to especially give to a first time craft beer drinker, somebody that wants to try maybe an IPA. I, I would always find out what they normally drink. You know, give them a little taster, of course, but don't just go in straight with a pint and. You know, I think can be a bit of a palate shock. Mm-hmm. Can be put off more people than you uh, want to actually yeah, yeah. win over. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. triple IPA. Finally, the younger super, or something. Yeah. Super sour. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'll get them in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so let's go back to chatting about uh, obviously the history and the, the evolution of uh, of the brewery. Um, in 2011, um, there was a decision to to sell up. Yeah. To to AB InBev. Um, I don't imagine it was a decision that was taken very lightly uh, at the time. What was the driving force behind the decision at that time? So, I mean, exactly. It wasn't a, it wasn't a decision that was made overnight. Uh, John John sort of considered a few options. There were there were other options on the table apart from Avian Bed, but, but John's kind of background, he was approaching 70 at the time. And, um, you know, he'd done a good 27 years bringing it from, bringing Dusan from a brew pub up to what it was. Um, we were in about 23 states at the time and, and reaching that point where we couldn't really get our beer out to any more people we were at capacity so the, the brewery needed a, a huge amount of investment to you know John, John's ethos he wants to get his beer to, to more people he wants to get the beer in, in as many hands as possible that's the way the way he saw it so um, you know, needed that massive investment and, and John wasn't I guess prepared to take on a hell of a lot of debt he was at that time in his life when he was you know he's, he's done some, some really good stuff and probably not, not a bit I say a bit of retirement that that would be that wouldn't really fit because you know, John spends a lot of time I was with me. Say, yeah, he hasn't really retired, has he? No. We, we, we recently <laughs> did an event block party, and you know, and John was doing the speaking with that, um, you know, chatting about the brewery. So no, he does. He is still massively involved, but obviously didn't want to take a massive lot of debt onto himself. Um, and and AB InBev, you know, sort of spoken to John about this. It just it was the right fit. Mm-hmm. Had the the correct logistics for the brewery to to exist. You know, the best kind of brewing systems in the world. And um, yeah, it, it, it just fit, really. Um, I think for John as well, it was important the integrity of the beer remained. I think that was one of the things which shows in the fact that he's still, you know, I th- I'm sure he doesn't have to come out to do block party and migration week and other events that we run uh, throughout this country and throughout the world. Um, but he's still there. He still turns up and he does he's speaking and he helps us with our events. And he's a great draw because he's a great personality and that, that level of passion that early yeah. on as, as the risk taker. And he, and he wouldn't stand next to us if, uh, you know, he didn't want to stand by, behind the, the same beer that he brewed back, uh, back in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, a couple of friends of mine, went, a couple of friends of ours went to the, the block party in, in, in London and um, they both written blogs about it. And uh, they were both paying. The, the, bit, the bit which really came across is when John started speaking, no one else was. He was at the top of a few steps yeah. and everyone was listening to what he had to say. And like you say, he doesn't have to do it. I mean, if he was 70s, he must be mid-70s now. Yeah. You know, he's, he's piping slippers almost and he's, he's obviously doing quite the opposite. Absolutely, and uh, you know, sort of did the, the migration events we did as well, had uh, lots of live music on for that in London um, and, and just John, John's up dancing. John, John's up there later than, than the rest of us, you know, he's, <laughs> yeah. he's massively passionate and of course he would be because Goosan's his baby and it, and it still is, he's a, he's a good confidant, he's a, he, I get great advice from John as well and when he comes over we take him to pubs and what do you think of this and yeah, still shaping. So. 
So, so part of, of what we, we did was um, for these two shows was to, to, to ask our audience, um, we, we'll normally run a poll every week for, for, for the podcast, but we, we actually ran three for, for this one because we, we've obviously been planning this for a few weeks and we wanted to make it something that people would listen to as, as well. So, opinions, 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 opinions. Um, the first poll that we ran was was about the ownership uh, of Goose Island, and we asked people: um, Is big is big beer ownership of smaller brands a good thing for the industry? Now we had 179 votes on this one. 79% um, of those said no; uh, they didn't think it was a good thing. Um, only 8% said yes, and 13% and of people simply didn't care. Um, which you can take that either way, uh, I suppose. There's always a, an element of ambivalence within these sort of things. But some of the comments that we had um, from some of our listeners were so. Mark at Kel fired. Um, if Big Beer use their size to secure hop contracts for the small companies without driving others out of business, it's good. But I don't trust Big Beer to work that way. Profit over product generally wins. Uh, the bearded one said, people seem to think that big beer is bad, but big beer is raking it in like supermarkets, someone, so someone must be buying it. Um, Pete McCary at PJ McCary said, his main concern is macros dominating taps and shelves. Aside from that, if the beer's still good and they treat the staff well, then all's good. Um, and then the last one is from Matthew Perrett at Pat Perrett 8. Can't see a positive yet to be convinced of any negative not sure that helps though uh, which is which is probably a, a great one from Matt but he felt there. passionate about his ambivalence yeah, yeah, yeah but he wanted yeah. he wanted to comment which is it's great he wanted and, to get involved yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's no. great that people get involved in, in these sorts of things with us um, so, so how do you guys react to some of those comments that Big Beer is simply trying to take over the, the, the industry I think um, I can understand people being wary. I, you know, I totally sympathise with that. And perhaps if you looked at the brewing industry in the 60s and 70s, particularly in the UK, with how the big six operated, yep. and some of your uh, older older listeners will be able to remember the, what we mean by the big six breweries that tended to dominate and buy up and amalgamate, close breweries down. And I think the difference is now with the craft beer movement is that people want diversity and they want choice. And uh, if if a large brewery uh, bought a small one uh, and closed it down and took away all the choice and just produced one beer, uh, they would lose out. They're not, they're not going to grow. It would be, be a complete mistake to do that. The value of, of someone like Goose Island is that we produce so many different beers. There is an amazing array of flavors. There's something for everybody. Um, you're not just buying, you know, ABI did not just buy the Goose label. They bought the liquid inside the bottle. And I think that's very important that if that was devalued in some way, um, there wouldn't be any business left, but the reverse is true. Um, you know, Goose Island's never been more popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think for me as well is uh, there are breweries like Goose Island and John. We you know we wanted to expand and we wanted to get out there, and, and, and in order for us to do that, we needed you know a great logistics system, a great distribution system to ensure that it got over fresh. Um, and, and as I say, it needed a lot of investment. There's there's so many different ways it's happening at the moment: private equity or or whether it's bigger brewers buying out. I think the big thing for me is, is, is what, what they're doing with those breweries and it's all about the quality that comes out at the end. Um, but also the, the great thing, you know, and I, I can speak for Goose Island only in this because I've worked specifically with them, it's, it's 
job opportunities are great. Um, you know, the sort of the roles that I've come out working with Gusan, like my role is brand ambassador for Europe. There are three of me in the world, uh, not me specifically. We've got that would be weird. There's three clones. Yeah, we're cloning. <laughs> so, so big beard cloning. You heard yeah. it here first. There you go. <laughs> Exclusive. Um, no, so we've got Mariana over in uh, looking after Mexico, um, and we've just taken on somebody for, for China as well, uh, Didi. And it's you know it's it's great. It's, it's creating these jobs that not necessarily have have sort of existed before, and and also you know we, we're taking Gusan to to bars that have never stopped craft beer before i'm walking into bars where they've got five lager lines on and we're we're, we're coaching these guys into the craft market mm -hmm. and, and when we go in and especially when we're coaching someone on craft beer, we're almost holding their hands and sort of showing them what craft beer is we'll always go in and say you know have a local line it's not about let's tie all your lines off it's 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 mix and match get your local lines on support local but also have an american craft beer in mm -hmm. as well and it's kind of, it's, for me, it's opened up the market and we've been out there seeing it. It's actually opening doors to bars that might never have had craft before or, you know, we're kind of first adopters. And I think that, I think that a company like, like ours, um, you know, can open those doors and look, that small local brewers perhaps would find hard to get um, a, a local craft beer in a hotel group, for example. Um, you know, that's a tough, that's a tough ask for any salesperson, but... But perhaps, you know, with a mix of beers that we can break trail in areas where people have not not used to seeing, you know, craft beer or specialty beer before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once we prove that this kind of style of beer works, uh, you know, a couple of years down the line, that opens a door for other brewers to go in. Uh, local brewers, perhaps when they want to develop their offering, you know, they then go to a local brewer as well. Uh, and without us going into those kind of those kind of accounts, um, they may never have been confident enough to take on a craft IPA or a, you know, whatever there might be. Uh, so certainly we're sort of breaking trail and hopefully that'll see the expansion. Instead of treading on the toes of everybody in the, in the craft beer bars, we're actually expanding the market and hopefully we can all benefit from that. So some, some skeptics might say to what you've just said there that actually what you're trying to do is go in and take over the, the taps in, in, in a bar and to, to stop others from coming in. But I guess from what, what you've just both said there, that's absolutely not the case. It, it, it doesn't make sense, you know. You want you want choice. You want you want local. You need to support local because you you know we need local breweries around. Of course, I mean number one, I love going to local breweries and drinking. You know, it's, it's great beer. It's about having different um, different choices available. Um, and you know, for, for for me and my background and, and running bars, I would never just have one brewery tied onto all my beers. It just doesn't. Choice is, is the, that's the whole great thing about this beer revolution is choice and we want more. Because I, I, I suppose the, the, the place where most of us are at now, we, we, we spoke about, uh, you, you know, a few minutes ago about the gate being way in the distance uh, in terms of those gateway beers is, is that I don't want to come into a bar and, and drink the same beers from the same brewery necessarily all evening. I want to be able to dip in and out of different beers and try different styles and different breweries and, and, and have an evening trying different things. So that, that's, that's important for me mm. as, as, as a beer consumer. And it's encouraging to hear that as, as a business, that's the way that you guys are approaching it as, Absolutely. as well. Craft Absolutely. beer is all about choice. And if, if we, you know, and it's, that's what's really driven it. It's not that there's been this one new beer that comes out that everybody wants to drink. It, you know, there's over 4,000 breweries in the US. Uh, there's a 1,500 breweries more than in the UK. It's, it's a huge amount of beer being produced. 
there's plenty of choice out there for everybody. And there's plenty of room. I think there's plenty of room for everyone because the craft beer market on the whole is generally growing around the world. It's generally growing in, in this country, in Asia, in, in the US, uh, you, know, Port, you know, Portland and the state of Oregon, uh, over 50% of the beer sold in Oregon is craft beer. Mm. Um, you know, that's, ama- that's an amazing growth of uh, turning around what was probably 30 years ago, probably less than 2%. That, is, if that. That, that on its own is a pretty amazing stat. Actually. I mean, that is, yeah. I mean, they, they are the flag bearers yeah, of American craft. Still, that is, you know, but if it's you, still on its own, a stat. Half of the beer sold would be classed as craft. Yeah, in terms of value, yeah. yeah. In yeah. terms of value rather than volume. Yeah. yeah, but they're still pretty amazing. That's, we're a long way off of that here, aren't we? Long way yeah, off. Yeah. Um, should we get into the next beer yes. before we continue? So I, I think what we've got coming up next is the classic Goose Island IPA. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which I think a lot of people probably would have cut their teeth on as, as maybe so, being so, one of their first so craft beers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so while, while you're just pouring these out for us, t- tell us a little bit about this beer yep. in, in particular. Absolutely, so we started brewing Goose IPA back in 1990. Um, this is our flagship beer, so we had Sierra Nevada had their pale ale at the time and they kind of had the, the sort of, that was their style. They were brewing, we, we didn't want to do a pale ale, so we, we came up with IPA. So our IPA, we, we've got um, six medals at the Great American Beer Festival, which makes it the most awarded for its, uh, in its style category, um, which we're still very proud of. Uh, we've also got our own hop farm as well in Idaho, Elk Mountain Farm. So that's another great thing about, about sort of the, the partnership with AB InBev. Um, Elk Mountain Farms a few years ago was literally a few acres. It was pretty much going out of business. Uh, it became on the radar with Goose Island guys, and it was like there's this opportunity to to acquire this this hop farm, and now I think we're at about well, they're at about 1,700 acres, providing a lot of jobs. But you know, for us as well, amazing hops. Uh, we even got a lab there where we're cross training new breeds, wow. which will be available yeah. to Goose Island on the way. And then those hops exclusively for Goose Island juice, or or does some of them get sold off to other contracts? Um, I, I, at the moment, I believe we're using it mainly for goose. I'm not sure how we grow where those go, but at the moment, yeah, exclusive. So, um, but you know, that that just does that alone. It means that we we get the best choice of hops, the best quality ingredients, which I think is another yeah. another key benefit. So this one comes in at uh, 5.9%. Um, it's it's based on an English style IPA. So this one's actually again, it's like our other beers. It's all about the balance. You should get a nice malt sweetness at the beginning. We've got some European hops in there, some Styrian Goldings. We've also got some Cascade and some Centennial, some of the American hops. I get a lot of pine resin on this one, sort of white pine, pine resin, a um, little bit of herbaceous notes. And it's got a nice bitterness on the back. It's, it's just- Pithiness to it. Mm. Okay, so uh, it? Yeah, cheers. 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 So I think this, you know, for me, this combines elements of you know the American style IPA as well as the sort of British style IPAs, which has has that hoppiness, has the, so that, those American hops, but they're not like a punch in the face. This is very much sort of uh, you know sort of describes me one of the guys from from Chicago as a Mid Atlantic IPA. They're really trying to sort of showcase the sort of the the malt and the and the drinkability of a British mm-hmm. beer, while just just having those American hops there, but not overwhelming. It's no it's nowhere near a West Coast style American no, IPA. No, it, equally it's not going out towards what's now starting to become a bit of an East Coast IPA as well. It's, it is well balanced, there's no, I don't think you can say anything else, it is definitely a well balanced drinking beer. It doesn't taste like a 5.9. So I was no, quite surprised when you said that, yeah. I had to admit. 
Because uh, I always had Goose Island in my head closer to five and six. No, yeah, no, it's 5.9. That, that for me just really does point towards the, the great balance you get with it. You, you don't notice the alcohol, which, you know, in that as well. Um, love pairing this with things like blue cheese. I, you know, I, every time I drink this now, I, I want a piece of blue cheese next to me just because it, it really pairs very yeah, well. I, I didn't. I do now. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I had to share that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can barely talk for the salivation yeah, that's in, in my mouth cheese, right now. Yeah, that and carrot that's what I can think. Yeah. <laughs> that and uh, carrot cake. <laughs> carrot cake goes very, very well with goose IPA as well. No, I'm, I'm less of a sweet tooth, but it's, and it's blue cheese in my head now. But yeah. it's great because we can you can showcase this with blue cheese and carrot cake, and you can show people maybe how not amazing. at the same time. Not at the same time, because, but because that you, would just be weird. But you can, yeah. you or, can or show people show people exactly what beer can do. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. Food pairing, that's something that both Josh we, and I are really we, into. We did a beer in uh, cheese pairing at work. Yep. Um, for the beer tasting club that I run. And the, about half of the club are the regulars, but the other half weren't. They were because we got Melissa Colding to do the, the hosting for us and the whole thing about the, the, the cheese and beer pairing, whereas people in the heads have often got wine and, you know, or port yeah. with cheese. They were quite intrigued by it. It works fantastically well. Really well, does well, you know, cheese and someone described it. I think it was probably Garrett Oliver or someone both described, you know, beer and cheese are both are both sort of grasses that have been sort of reimagined. You know, grass is eaten by a cow; it's turned into cheese. Barley is a kind of grass, and we turn it into beer. So there is that sort of that kind of embryonic connection between the two. Synergy somewhere yeah. along the line. Somewhere along the line, and it does go. It, it does go together. very very well. They do yeah. go very well together, and it's. Not that there's uh, there's some great wine cheese pairings yeah. out there as well. I'm not uh, I'm not saying that, but I think beer can offer a whole other dimension to food and uh, to food pairing. Well, I mean, we often have people bring cheese to our bottle share, Steve. Yeah, and, and it, it always gets destroyed. Yes, in in, in seconds. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it just works so well. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of this beer, yeah, um, the, the flavours on it. Um, like you say, you do get that resinous feel on the nose and, and on the flavour. It is more, you know, it's, it's a lovely balance between the malt and the hops in there. Um, as you said, that you're not getting smacked in the face by, by hops. They're there, they let you know they're there, but it's balanced out very yeah. well with, with, with the malt finish. Yeah, there's a slight sweetness on the palate as well on it. On it. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, this being probably your... I, I suppose your predominant beer from from your range, the one that you're most well known for. Um, there are a lot of people that have commented that your beers have changed since you've changed ownership. Um, what what do you say when when people say, "Oh, well, the core beers taste different now"? I th I think you know for me, and, and again, working personally back with the brewers in Chicago uh, and going back there with the guys. I think for me that there's a bit of a stigmatism that, that almost people associate with, with acquisition that they're almost expecting. I, I don't know where it's come from. Um, we've done a lot, you know, a lot of work of chatting with the guys. You know, there's been rumours out there that we've changed the yeast strain, for instance, specifically was one that came out. Um, and we, we, we kind of addressed those points with Mike Siegel, who's at head of innovation. We still use the same yeast strain. We actually use around about 21 different yeast strains over the year. But for our core beers, we use our house ale yeast strain, which is the first one that we, we actually took. It was an English style ale yeast. Um, and we, we, we're still using that in this beer. It's a bit of a bastard strain, so it started off as English. We've isolated it. It's, you know, the brewers say, I'm not a brewer myself, but, but Mike and I say it's not 
the best yeast strain to work with, but it's our identity. Mm -hmm. um, so that was specifically something that's been rumored around, which is, is categorically not true. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the, the other side to it, obviously acquisition in 2011, 23 states. How, how have we got our beer out now in, in all states in America, eight countries outside? Um, that's because we actually, we have two breweries outside of Goose Island and Fulton, one in Baldwinsville, uh, one in Colorado, which are AB InBev breweries. And it's taken a, a long time, you know, it's been five years now, but we've, we've worked out a really good system to be able to take certain recipes. Um, we take them to um, a, a pilot system that's AB InBev owned, which is a smaller version. And then we'll basically test the beers at Fulton Brewery as home first to decide whether they're, they're gonna be uh, good to scale up. Then we take them to the pilot brewery and we really test them there. Then if they, they go through those tests, we'll put them to, to say Baldwinsville, which is the, the core beers that we have. That's where they're brewed. And we, we have this um, sort of triangle blind tasting back at Fulton. Every batch brewed goes back and is tasted by the brewers who have to sign it off. Um, you know, it's, it's analyzed it's, by the lab. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a very, very rigorous process. It's, you know, it's, you know, you know, any any brewer will tell you scaling up from you know when you have a, even a small brewery when they've taken their recipe their home brew recipe, and they scale it up to a to a microbrewery or a microbrewery wants to expand to a slightly larger size. Whenever you change equipment, you change fermenters, you change shapes uh, of the fermenters, you change your mash tun, whatever you do, you have to um, you have to tweak to your brewing techniques to ensure that the flavor is identical. You can't just times a recipe by 10 for a 10 times bigger brew kit. It doesn't, just wish it was that simple, it's not that simple. But every single, every single beer, as Josh said, comes back and gets tested. Every single batch gets tested. And if it doesn't taste right, if they don't feel it's representative of Goose IPA or 312, then it gets turfed, simple as that. Uh, it's, a very stringent, it's a very stringent level of testing to make sure the beers do taste the same. So, with, with so the, the Goose IPA is essentially the same beer 1990, I think you said it came out. Yep. To, to now. Yeah. So the, the, the only thing that can differ is, is sort of the, the, the hopping varieties may not have been exactly the same from the start due to harvest what's available, but the core, the recipe, the yeast strain are, are, are the same. And actually in terms of, in terms of Goose IPA being brewed at, at Baldwinsville and, and coming over to us, the guys have told me that, that actually they have to put, you know, we have to put more uh, dry hopping, more amounts of dry hops in to get that same flavor. So actually, you know, hops being one of the most expensive parts, we have to actually put more in to get that, that flavor. So it's all about the, the, the flavor and the, the kind of what is Goose yeah. IPA at the end over the, the, what it's gonna cost to brew it. Um, and then, you know, hops and barley are natural ingredients. Uh, you have a hot summer, cold summer, wet summer, uh, you know, your alpha acids you, in your hops might change from year to year. Your fermentables in your barley might be slightly different. You know, rather like vintages of, of, of wine. Yeah. You know, that's more obviously going to be different from year to year. But, you know, you have to tweak brewing recipes to reflect mm -hmm. the harvest. It's as simple as that. Every brewery in the world has to do that. If you want the same level of bitterness one year to the next, you may have to, you may have to alter your hop additions. I mean, do you think that question, would it, that statement would be leveled at you if you hadn't sold up? To ABI in 2011, do you no. think that 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 question would have come out? I, I don't think so personally because I think uh, you know we all know it's 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 kind of easy to to, to to kick the to kick the big companies, um, and so I think it's it's probably fashionable to sort of to say that and to think that you know whether that uh, it's it's a very difficult thing to prove for anybody outside the brewery unless you have a time machine you bring a mid 90s IPA fresh and a a 2016 IPA fresh and have them side by side. Yeah. 
you know, yeah, you I've been drinking you goose since... You can't do an aged IPA, can you? You can't do an aged... <laughs> yeah, you can't do... Not, an, not, not this kind of aged IPA. We'll move on to that later. But it's... Um, you, you know, and it's... But, but what we do know is the, the brewers at the time and the brewers that are there now who've been there for a long... Who've been there for many years working at Goose Island... They oversaw um, when we had to when we had to start moving uh, into Baldwinsville Brewery uh, to brew our core range. You know, seventy percent of Fulton Street was three one two when Goose Island uh, took it over. That's a huge amount of capacity, which is now being given over to developing new amazing beers, broadening the range, uh, being able to being able to give a, a large range of new beers to people. To fans so was three one two? There was more three one two being brewed in, in Fulton than anything else. So three one two was our you know was our, our main main flyer. We've now got Green Line had kind of taken over from that. But three one two, as Johnny said, seventy percent of the brewing capacity. That leaves thirty percent for Bourbon County Stout, Sour Sisters, IPA, Honkers. So, so actually, what we have now, which is amazing, is we have capacity to innovate. Uh, we we have Fulton Wood series, so. We're bringing out lots of cool beers. You know, we're doing amazing coffee pale ale, which I really, really want to get over here. I'm going to try and do that. Um, and also, you know, we've got a two-barrel brew kit in the brewery, which, so Mike Siegel's head of innovation and works with Tim Faith. Um, and these guys actually, as well as brew, if you work in, say, finance or marketing at Goose or, or sales, which, you know, it's not a huge team, but you can put your name on the list to brew a beer with these guys if you've ever dreamt up a recipe. And we've got an amazing tap room, uh, which which we sort of uh, refurbed a couple of years ago and put in. Um, they, 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 that beer will then be on sale in the tap room, and those ones that that become you know, really popular and cool can then be sort of again worked on and, and sold. So it's uh, it's all about it. It gives us more time to innovate. Things like Four Star Pilsner, which is uh, just coming over to the UK now. That that started off as a beer. Um, so we've got Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago. We sort of. Do a, normally do a beer most years with the, the, the music artists that play there. We did a beer with Run the Jewels uh, one year. But the guys that put up all the rigging and stuff, actually, they wanted to make a beer themselves. Like, come on, guys, you, you do it with, the, with these guys, uh, all, all these musicians. But what about us? We're here slogging it out. We're, we're doing the hard work. Yeah, we're doing yeah. the hard work. Exactly. So we're like, okay, guys, you know, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to see? And they're like, we'd like a pilsner because obviously we've got to work next morning. We don't want something too heavy. Um, so it was a beer brewed. Generally, it will go just for that festival and it disappears. But it was so popular that we did a Chicago release only. We changed the name uh, to Four Star Pills to make it relevant. And um, again, so popular, we were able to scale it up and we now got it over in the UK. And it's, it's those little sparks that we're now able, we're, we're able to be flexible at Fulton. There's four stars on the Chicago flag in case anyone's wondering. What, I was going to make some things. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, so, so I was thinking of Chicago is the four stars. Four star <laughs> so, so you're still producing uh, a solid core range and, and you're innovating more. Um, and, and just continuing on, on this theme, when, again, one of the comments we had, and this was from Nick Plain at the Mighty Jag, says that big companies would always look at profit. Um, even if they insist the product won't change, it inev inev inevitably, I'll get that word out in a second, does. Um, they'll always look for savings, whether it's cheaper or less ingredients, less time to mature profit rules over quality what's your what's the comeback to that is is it all about profit or are you still i mean you said in the goose ipa you're using more hops now so actually hops, you could yeah. probably say that that's more hop than it's ever been before i think and you can in, I, in terms of yeah i think you can you know there are you know you can make 
profit is always going to be important for any business. There's no, there will be no business, whether you're a two, three-man brewery, uh, you know, in a railway arch, whether you are, you know, producing Budweiser. You have to make money out of it, otherwise no one has a job. So an element of profit is always going to be important for any business because at the end of the day, every brewery, unless you're a home brewer, is a business that has yeah, to earn a living absolutely. and it has to pay your salary. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so I think that is, it's important for, for drinkers to, to understand that every brewery is a business regardless of size. Um, there is no, for, for me, there is no point in, uh, in downgrading what Goose IPA is. If you buy, if, you, if you're a big company, you buy a smaller one, you're not just, as I said before, you're not just buying the brand name, you're buying the beer, you're buying the recipes, you're buying the integrity and the love that, the, that people have for the beer. Um, and if you start sort of tinkering with it, let's say, well, you know, Goose is 5.9, let's make it 4.5 because we'll sell more because of the tax. It'll cost less to different make. Beer. You're making a different beer yeah. and you're going, to lose, yeah. you're going to lose people instantly. So all the money that you've plowed into buying this small brewery, you may as well set fire to, to be honest, because you've lost exactly what you've bought and you're preserving what you've bought with, the, with that money by that investment. Yeah, and you know, specifically with, with Goose Arms as well, um, you know, we mentioned about the hops before, we're getting the same flavor, but we're having to put more money in to get that flavor. That's, the beer comes first and the quality comes first. You know, we, we've had a, a large investment on our barrel warehouse for you know, Bourbon County Stout and our Sour Sisters. It's 133,000 square foot facility. It's amazing. You know, there, there's, there is a lot of money and love that goes into this. A uh, beer that we're going to taste in a sec as well is, is, is resurrecting an old recipe that's not been brewed for over 50 years. And, you know, being able to do those things, that's about investment and it's about passion. You know, Mike Siegel is, is passionate about uh, historic recipes. Whenever he comes to the UK, um, he doesn't really want to taste the American hot forward beers that, that are being done here, although he still likes to try them. Mike wants to see old ales. He wants to taste traditional stuff because he's like, you know, you guys have got such a tradition and a heritage here. That's what he's interested in. And, and those passions, and again, we go back to kind of the, the brewers are still running. It, it's still business as usual at Goose Island. And, and, and the guys have their passions for what they want to do and what they want to brew. And, you know, we do. And I, you know, and I sort of, you know, without sort of wanting to sort of overplay, you know, we're not naive in thinking that you can, you can save money on, on, on beer, like a large company can save money on. If you're buying a, a million bottles, the same size bottle, rather than a small brewery buying, you know, 10,000, you can save money on things like that because of your purchasing yeah. power. You know, you can save money on things which don't affect the quality of the beer inside the bottle. So, you know, there are, you know, there is elements of that. And I know some people say, yes, you know, they would hear that, but we don't compromise on the quality of the beer. But yeah, you can make savings if you've got larger buying power. That's just Well, that's just economics. Any, any merger in any company though. I mean, even if you just go down things like your labeling, you know, that must be cheaper for however many millions of bottles you get labelled. I'm sure if they buy those labels from the same people that yeah. make the labels for yeah. 10 other types yeah. of and, and the ability and, to you know. produce cans as well, because we know, you know the, the volume that you have to buy volume, of cans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah to be able Small to volume is, is to tough with cans. So, yeah. so, so basically, uh, summarising what, what we've just been talking about is, is what the, the, the acquisition has allowed is, is for Goose Island to actually increase what, what you're doing. So not, not only have you been able to sustain the core range, you've been able to offer it in different packages as well. So you, you're now bringing it in cans, mm -hmm. but you've also been able to start innovating a little bit more and, and, and you know increasing on 
the, the new beers that you're trying. And one of the beers that, that you mentioned there, Josh, I think we're going to try next, which is Absolutely. kind of a new innovation for, for you guys. Yeah. Um, so do you, want to, do you want to tell us what we're going to have next? Yes, uh, tell us the background to it, why, why you get it into our glasses and, and then into our face, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> you can't really see this, but it's a lovely big uh. bottle. And uh, there, there, there's a few more. Um, so this is Brewery Yard. And, and this is a beer that, that's, you know, it's been a, it's been a few years in the making. Um, as I said before, Mike Siegel, uh, head of innovation at Goose, one of our brewers, um, very passionate, as I said before, about historic recipes. Um, he actually got uh, chatting to Ron Pattinson, and uh, you know, Ron Pattinson's sort of the guy that I think the quote is: if if, if he doesn't know about the sort of history of the beer, then it's probably not worth knowing. The guy is you know, met met him and, and spent some time with him, and he just yeah, crazy it's knowledge. An encyclopedia. There we go. But um, so, so these guys sort of uh, met up and they wanted to bring back, a, do a beer together and bring back a historical recipe. And um, Brewery Yard is what they came up with. So it's a, it's a stock pale ale, um, which, you know, is, is basically back in the sort of 19th century. It, it's almost at the time when pale ales and IPAs could have been seen to have been uh, interchangeable as a style, but a stock pale ale is basically that beer going into that barrel and spending an amount of time sort of aging in the barrel. So the one that we've got today is it's a, it's a lovely, it's an 8.4%, uh, 62 IBUs, it's a, it's a lovely stock ale. Yeah, so it's this, a stock pale ales, um, so Ron, Ron Pattinson's done a lot of research uh, on it and it's named Brewery Yard after the Bass Brewery Yard where they used to age there their stock pale ale, although the recipe is based on, a, on a, I believe it's a Truman's recipe. Um, so back in the uh, 1800s, uh, what we now know as IPA um, would, have been, uh, would have been brewed and would have been aged uh, for a good sort of 10 months to a year before it, even, before it even was put on the ship on the way to India. And this would have been aged um, by Bass. It was aged in an outdoor brewery yard. Uh, the only protection it had was uh, lots of hops, for uh, antibacterial purposes um, and wet straw was put on it during the hot months to sort of try and in an effort to keep it reasonably cool. Uh, the thing which was which was true about all uh, aged beers in Britain at the time was that it had wild yeast, Britannomyces in it. And Ron and Mike dosed this with Britannomyces clausenii which was the uh, generally seen as the British Brett. Brett is in the Belgian exclusive. It's uh, Wild yeast um, goes everywhere, as you might imagine, and uh, this yeast was identified in around 1905 in, in British beer barrels. So this would have been aged in hogsheads for around a year um, with Brett, and that Brett would have been, it's a great oxygen and sugar scavenger, would have eaten up the rest of the sugars, so it's really dry. Eat sugars that the regular ale yeast, Saccharomyces, can't, uh, uh, can't eat, and, uh, and helps preserve the beer as well. Helps, because when you take away all those sugars, the bacteria doesn't really have anything to eat, plus all those hops. And um, and then we've come out with uh, with this beer. So tuck in. Excellent. Oh, cheers. cheers. It's a lovely funk on the nose. It's it's so interesting because it's got the it's got the sort of funk on the nose that I absolutely hate. Um, I'll take the beer then. No, 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 no. <laughs> Leave the beer <laughs> where, where it is. Um, Almost. Because you get through that nose and actually what you get to is this incredibly powerful beer and underneath. It's, it's, it's got the bitterness that you would expect from a really, really fresh IPA. 
Um, it's got a lasting dry finish on mm. it, and it's incredibly drinkable as well for eight and a half percent. Did you say eight and a half? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. feel that at all. So it's it's got for me as well. It's got that 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 malt bodies there as well, and it just it just it balances it nicely. Um, so actually, we only had about around four thousand bottles of this produced, so it's a one-off. You know, it's not something that we're we're planning to brew again, but it's just it was a great side project, and hopefully, sadly, but you know, for me also, yeah, I'd hopefully say that not. As well, the, having had a little sip of it, yeah, yeah hopefully not the last though, because yeah. I'm sure Ron and Mike Siegel are probably going to be chatting to you know, hopefully to dream up their next beer. So um, I hope this might inspire some British breweries to recreate yeah. British well, I mean, storage styles. It's you know? quite a thing, isn't it? Because I mean, um, Pete McCary again, somebody who listens to the show quite regularly, wrote a, a part about this one because he went to the event. And also about Carlsberg, they brought out uh, one of their previous centuries-old recipe as well. Obviously, Fuller's do it quite regularly yeah. over here. It's probably the one, the really big one in the UK. But like you say, there is a massive heritage. Why wouldn't you mine it when you can? Well, I think that's that's the point. It's that we're all the all the new breweries, and as they are in the states as well as here, they're all looking to modern styles. But actually. You know, we've got, you know, and when we look at historic beers, we all look to Belgium quite regularly. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, the beers we've got, and Fuller's are great at what they do with the past masters, um, but we've got an amazing history of beers. We've got an amazing relationship with wild yeast and aging beers and barrels and stuff like that in this country. And it's great to see uh, people like Mike and Ron at Goose, uh, you know, recreate this. I, I find it interesting that, that, that you said that, that originally with this beer, or, or the, if, if this was brewed in its original state, the hops were used as a preservative rather than for, for what yeah. we ex expect of hops now, which is to give you a big bitter it's punch a in the face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was all, it was all about the preservatives with yeah. the hops. It was, and we, you know, I mean, certainly brewing in Europe, with, you know, the first, first use of hops was in the ninth century, uh, gathering wild hops. The first uh, documentation was in the 12th century of them realizing that hops were, was a, was a natural, we would now call them an antibacterial, but they would see it as a, Something just prevented beer going sour, um, or helped prevent beer, or, or made it last a bit longer. So you know, when they when they started brewing beers for India, it was well known at the time that hops uh, was a great preservative. It'd been known for centuries, um, but that's what it was used for. I mean, aging beer. Um, you know, we talk about sour beers in Belgium. We we certainly didn't have as many sour beers here because we use hops. You know, in in our pale ale and our aged beers, we had October beers which were well hopped as well, which were used for aging. You know, we had aged beers that would have, would have aged for over 21 years. So we've got no new beers? Yeah, all, all the beers are stuff the, that's been done before. Yeah, 100 years there's, ago. There's no innovation. There's no new beer. There's the, yeah, there's, there's no innovation. <laughs> Everything's been done before. That's so essentially they, what you're saying. Would this, have, would this come out at 8.5% 100 years ago? Well, the average, well, the average, uh, the average um, strength for IPA was around 6.5%. Um, Ron sort of proved that. Yeah. But that was the average strength for, for most beer for in this country. Gym, wasn't unless, it? You were, unless you were sort of 12 and drinking at lunchtime and you'd have had a sort of like a table beer or a, or a luncheon bitter mm -hmm. as it became known, those sort of lower ABV beers for the family. Um, you know, most beer that you would have gone to, a, to an alehouse or something or whatever we'd call a pub now would have been around 6.5%. There certainly were stronger beers as well. October beers, which were, uh, we think, were the sort of the... Um, sort of antecedent of IPA was around 11% to 11, 12% some of them um, but heavily the sound of October in the old days yeah heavily heavily <laughs> but that's, that's well was, before Oktoberfest that yeah, yeah it's, but the interesting thing that Mike uh, Siegel did at Goose was he took he took a chemical tests of how how the bitterness changed 
So this was dosed before fermentation with, I think, around 140-something IBUs. And a lot of Ron's recipes, if you look at Ron's, he's got a great book, um, Vintage Ales for the Home Brewer, and you look at all the IBUs for these, they're all like 90 to 120. They have, they have ridiculously high IBUs. And we were brewing these beers, you know, 100, 150, yeah. 200 years ago with these IBUs. It's not a new thing to put 100 IBUs in a beer. But, um, but Mike sort of tested the IBUs and saw how they declined. That you could put that in at the beginning, and that's what often people quote on the side of their bottle. And that's, like, what get, and that's what you get. But actually, the IBUs, you know, reduced to 62. So it's, it's you know, probably three-fifths or something, sort of... Uh, off the top of my head, have, have reduced through yeah. aging. And that makes sense. All those high IBUs that people produce beer in the old days, that was designed for aging. So the IBUs would have naturally just sort of leveled down. And this kind of leveled off at around 62. You can see the sort of the chart, the sort of the bell curve kind of kind of level out a little bit at the end. So they don't as you can see, balanced. Like yeah, but even with 60 IBUs, it doesn't, so it's not astringently bitter. No, no but it's no. a really just mellow, it's a lovely bitterness. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, and I'm enjoying every sip of, of, of this beer as well. Um, um, I mean, we've still got quite a lot in our glasses of this beer, and I think we're gonna enjoy this for, for a while yet. Um, we've got a couple more beers coming up, but they're gonna be in part two uh, of this episode. So um, just, just give our listeners a, a, a feel for what we've got coming up in part two. Absolutely, so uh, part two, we get to try uh, one of the Sour Sisters. So we've got Hullier, which is a, a great beer. Um, sort of saison with with fresh peaches. It's been barrel secondary fermentation in, in wine barrels. Um, Sounds like everything I love in a beer. Yeah, but but no, be patient though, because it's it's uh, yeah, it's a really okay, really. Okay, I will enter that one with an open mind. Be open minded. That's all I ask of you. You know, there you go, not so every beer's for everyone. Yeah, um, and then then you know yeah, we've, we've got some Bourbon County Stout that we're going to be uh, we're going to be tasting as well. Um, a little bit excited about that, got to admit, not going not, not gonna to hide it. No, not going to hide that yeah. one. Um, listen, it's been great chatting with you guys tonight. Um, I've really enjoyed the beers that you've offered us and also the insight that you've given us into Goose Island. Um, make sure you do tune in to episode two of this because we've got more of the polls that we put out there to, to quiz the guys on. And we've got those amazing two beers to, to taste. So, um, cheers. cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks very much.